This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Sea levels have reached record highs and the rise is accelerating. Sea surface temperatures have reached a record high. And sea ice levels in Antarctica have hit a record low. We are living through climate collapse in real time and the impact is devastating. This year has seen communities around the world pounded by fires, floods and searing temperatures. Record global heating should send shivers down the spines of world leaders. That was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking at COP28 in Dubai, November 30th, 2023. Along with hundreds of scientist guests, I have been saying that for years. This year, the global pot came to a visible boil, and we are in the early phase of a hot El Nino trend for 2024 and beyond. In years past, we had correspondents calling in from the COP climate conferences and expectations of action. This year, an estimated 70,000 people burned through the long flight to Dubai, many of them in private planes. Humans still don't get it. Giant fossil fuel corporations and nationals have announced expanded production. Their trillion-dollar projects have already begun. Their investments will heat the world beyond three degrees this century. The climate conference is being held by the oil industry, literally by the CEO of a giant Middle East fossil fuel maker. Did they buy the world's only climate agency, like the Saudis buy sports networks? You and I know there will be a lot of green talk and very little action at COP28, even as global emissions continue to rise. Don't expect much coverage on Radio EcoShock. The real world is talking. The glaciers, storms, disappearing species, and lakes. Let's listen to what they say. Radio EcoShock. The best ice scientists in the world just issued this stark warning. Two degrees of warming commits all future generations to shrinking land and a deader ocean. The melting temperature of water is not open to negotiation. The ice world breaks down well before two degrees C of warming, and we are heading towards three degrees or more on our current course. Two degrees is too high, says the new State of the Cryosphere 2023 report. Joining us is scientist Twyla Moon. Dr. Moon is deputy lead scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Colorado. From Boulder, Colorado, Twyla Moon, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Hello. Thank you for having me. So the cryosphere is wherever snow or ice appear, and that's about 10% of the land surface of the planet, plus some of the sea surface that's frozen over with sea ice. How did this frozen world react? to record-breaking heat in recent years? Unfortunately, as you might imagine, the Earth's frozen components, so we're talking about snow, ice that forms on the ocean as sea ice, land ice that forms glaciers with the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets, and also frozen ground or permafrost. And all of these elements are extremely sensitive to small changes in temperature, just as the ice in your freezer is. And these warming temperatures uh, have been producing rapid and really somewhat devastating effects for these frozen components of the Earth system. 
For a long time, scientists knew climate tipping points existed but could not say when or what warming would trigger them. It sounds like there's more certainty now for tipping points in the cryosphere. Tell us more. Scientists have been continuing to improve our understandings of the Earth system and the processes at play, including improving our understanding of these frozen parts of our Earth system. And we often don't, um, as scientists, necessarily talk about tipping points as much as somewhat thresholds. I think sometimes folks with a word like tipping point can get an idea that things are going along fine and then suddenly fall off the end of a cliff. Unfortunately, things are not going along fine for the cryosphere right now, and those impacts are going to worsen into the future. What we do start to understand are these thresholds in which we start to have more irreversible damages. And those might be changes that would require many thousands of years for us to um, see, for example, regrowth of glaciers or to have the possibility of slowing and beginning to, again, uh, freeze ground as, as permafrost. So as we're understanding how these frozen parts of the Earth system work, we are being able to hone in more closely on what should be some of our global temperature goals in order to protect these systems. And one of those may be the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. There's a suggestion in the report that we've already passed that and that will be lost. Yes, there are several instances where we have already begun um, what could be irreversible losses. The West Antarctic Ice Sheet is a good example. And that, of course, is related to sea level rise that's showing up on coasts around the world. But even when we have components like ice sheet melt that contribute to sea level rise, we know now even with very low emission scenarios, we are likely to see a continued uptick of sea level. However, for us as humans, as communities, as economies to adapt, the rate of that change is really important. And that's where we can still see a lot of influence of human action. So if we are undertaking strong action and following some of the lowest emission pathways, we see a substantial decrease in the speed at which oceans are rising and the total amount of additional ocean rise that different coasts will see. And that, of course, is really important because that would mean we have more time to adapt and might not see the scale of changes that we would see if we were to continue on our current pathway of emissions. Well, another threshold in the report concerns what happens to the oceans when CO2 goes higher than 450 parts per million. We're currently crossing around 424 parts per million in November of 2023, and that's 50% higher than pre-industrial times already, and it's increasing at a faster rate. What does happen in the ocean at that 450 parts per million rate? You're correct. I think sometimes folks forget that as we put carbon dioxide into our atmosphere, the ocean does important work taking up that carbon dioxide, which which helps to keep it outside of the atmosphere and not produce as much warm temperatures. However, 
when the ocean is taking up carbon dioxide that results in ocean acidification. And a more acidic ocean uh, is a problem for those small species, many of them at the base of the food pyramid, that need not as acidic conditions in order to build the shells and essentially kind of their structures of life. And we see that already polar oceans in the Arctic and the Antarctic are taking up carbon dioxide more rapidly than other oceans around the world. And so they are seeing fairly rapid ocean acidification. And we can already observe that there are um, species that are seeing damage to their um, shells and body structure because of this increased acidification in the ocean. So that's something we have to be very concerned about in regards to continued emissions into the future. And ocean acidification is a process that is another one of these that is not reversible um, except for over many thousands of years. The big producers of coal, oil, and gas are developing more fossil fuels, enough to take us to three degrees warming and beyond. But let's hope for a miracle. Somehow the global average temperatures are only two degrees C over pre-industrial by 2100. Is that good? Is that safe? What happens at two degrees of warming? Two degrees of warming is certainly better than three degrees of warming. But unfortunately, even at two degrees of warming, we see some very significant and irreversible influences for the cryosphere. So first, I think it's important for listeners to remember that that global average temperature we talk about is just that, a global average. And actual temperature increases in different places in the globe can be higher or lower. Unfortunately, the Arctic is one of the fastest warming parts of our planet. It's warming several times faster than that global average. So as we, if we were to limit global average to 2 degrees Celsius, we will be seeing higher temperatures in the Arctic. And all of the components of the cryosphere are highly sensitive to that temperature change. So as we are getting to two degrees, if we were to be limiting ourselves to two degrees, we would, at that temperature, be seeing a substantial loss and total loss of some glaciers around the world, certainly tropical and low-latitude glaciers. We'd also be committing ourselves to substantial long-term sea level rise, uh, ongoing thawing of permafrost. This is important in part because as we thaw that frozen ground and permafrost, it releases additional heat-trapping gases to the atmosphere, um, which we will have to deal with as well as what we humans are putting into the atmosphere. So two degrees, as I said, certainly better than limiting to higher temperatures, but at that two degrees, we would be seeing some very significant and devastating uh, impacts for communities and people around the world. Based on detailed studies of markers from the past, ice can melt much faster than it is formed. What does that tell us about the way this planet changes from an ice house to hothouse climates? Yes, it's a really important observation that we are not able to grow, for example, a Greenland ice sheet as quickly as it might be able to disappear. In the past, the Earth's 
changes, um, which of course have the earth in the past has seen temperatures much higher than today, and it's also seen temperatures much lower than today. Of course, humans were not around at those times. We weren't trying to maintain a civilization and have agriculture and uh, stable communities and infrastructure. So as the earth changed in the past, there was simply a longer period of time of moving into or out of an ice age. And uh, what we are doing today is we people are significantly increasing the pace of this change in our atmosphere, adding heat-trapping gases, and that's producing very rapid responses, um, for example, from ice sheets. Unfortunately, if we were to stop our warming now and achieve, for example, a limit at one and a half degrees, that doesn't mean that we're getting to yet grow back glaciers and ice sheets. It would simply be a reduction of loss into the future. It takes much colder temperatures to start to build the ice because it's something that is built through snow year after year after year. We could spend a whole interview on each chapter in the Cryosphere Report. It covers ice sheets and sea level, mountain glaciers, permafrost, sea ice, and ocean acidification. Let's go back to the permafrost. Could you give us a snapshot of the current situation, and are there danger points approaching there? Yes, so permafrost is frozen ground. Uh, actually, about a quarter of the northern hemisphere is underlain by permafrost. I think some folks are surprised to learn that. And as permafrost is exposed to warming air temperatures, those temperatures in the air can start to move down into the ground and warm the ground and thaw the permafrost. You can almost imagine taking a chicken, a frozen chicken, out of your freezer and setting it on the counter. As it thaws, it doesn't become a puddle of water. Rather, you're left with the chicken. So that's the process of thaw, of frozen ground. And just like as you're taking that chicken out of the freezer, when it was frozen, you could not worry about eating it for months. But once it's thawed out on the counter, microbial activity is getting started, and you better eat that chicken pretty fast. Well, with frozen ground, as it's thawing, that's also allowing microbial and um, activity to happen and starting to release heat-trapping gases. So folks who are living in places with permafrost are concerned about thaw because it can cause potholes to open up in the ground or uneven patterns that can get in the way of roads working properly or cause damage to buildings. And people who are far away from permafrost should be very concerned about these additional heat-trapping gases that get released into the atmosphere. And that is a process that is quite slow for uh, reversing so that is, as we uh, stabilize temperatures in our atmosphere, or I hope we stabilize temperatures in our atmosphere, the permafrost is a bit slower to respond to that and is likely to continue to add heat-trapping gases to our atmosphere for one or 200 years that we'll have to be continuing to offset through our human actions. What are the concerns about rain over Greenland? Yes, we have seen increased amounts of rain over Greenland, and then we've also seen a lengthening summer melt season. 
sometimes I think folks are surprised to realize that rain can be especially problematic for the ice sheet because not only is that rain falling and not adding extra mass of snow, but that rain water is a little bit warmer than the ice that it falls onto and can encourage additional melt. We can also have instances where if we see melt on the surface of the ice sheet, um, but deep into the interior, that surface melt might trickle down into the ice sheet surface layer some and then freeze again, forming an ice lens that makes it harder for future melt to get caught up in the ice sheet and freeze again, causing that melt instead to go ahead and run off into the ocean, adding to sea level rise. So we've been seeing additional rain, and we've also been seeing some remarkable warm events in Greenland. For example, September of last year, 2022, we saw uh, melt events on the surface of the ice sheet late into September, a time when we would normally be expecting just to be having snow and a buildup of snow and ice mass on the ice sheet. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is scientist Twyla Moon from the National Snow and Ice Data Center. We're talking about the State of the Cryosphere 2023 report, Two Degrees is Too High. That comes from the International Cryosphere Climate Initiative, a cooperative among the world's best ice and snow experts. Ice experts have one of the longest takes on climate change. You you look back hundreds of thousands of years and forward thousands of years, and and the long view is even more scary in a way. The public seems unaware of these dangers because they happen in faraway places often. What are the predictions on our current course for sea level rise from ice loss? Our current course suggests that we might see very high levels of sea level rise. We're currently on course to a three degrees Celsius warming by 2100, and that opens the possibility for us to be moving to um, more than one meter of sea level rise average um, over these next 80 years. Now, when it comes to sea level rise, there are some important processes that we haven't been able to observe directly because, of course, humans have never undertaken this experiment before. We've never existed in a time with such high global temperatures as we see now or that we're headed towards. And so there are some processes about how ice sheets move and lose ice that we're not yet sure how quickly they are able to respond. The concern is that they may be able to respond more quickly than we have earlier imagined, and that opens up the possibility of committing ourselves to multiple, um, you know, 10-plus meters of sea level rise over the next couple hundred of years. Of course, that doesn't come all at once. That means ongoing rapid sea level rise that may uptick into the future here and cause a lot of issues with us being able to adapt and adjust our civilizations because we have many megacities, shipping infrastructure, a lot of coastal activity that um, we have on the planet now. And of course, we'd like to be able to keep that or at least be able to have sea levels rising slow enough that we can adapt to the change. 
Is it possible we could see shocking sea level rise? I mean, there have been pulses in the past, meltwater pulses uh, up to 4 meters or 13 feet. Might it happen again? It is possible that we could see some very large sea level increases, particularly as we look past the next 80 years and into the 2100s. That's a period where we could see a stark increase in rates of sea level rise beyond what we've experienced in this point or expect in the next few decades. And um, I sometimes am reminded to think like folks who um, have existed in these places for millennia, thinking about Arctic indigenous residents who will often talk about timescales of seven or more generations or multiple thousands of years. They, of course, maintained their societies on these long timescales. So sometimes it can sound like 80 years is very, very far away from now. But in fact, it's just around the corner. And a child born today will be influenced by those events in 80 years. Can you pick out one more important story from the report, perhaps something you consider underreported or underestimated? I often think that folks don't fully appreciate the important services that are being provided by mountain glaciers and snow. We talk more about sea level rise or um, thinking about, for example, additional heat-trapping gases from thawing permafrost, But many people don't realize that glaciers all around the world, um, from the Himalaya to the Andes um, to the Alps, are providing drinking water, providing agricultural water, providing runoff that is powering hydropower stations, and as well as providing tourism and other local infrastructure. Unfortunately, these mountain glaciers are really in serious trouble and we could see the total loss of quite a few of them just at two degrees warming. And that means drinking water, agricultural water, and power problems for millions of people around the world. And I think that folks often underappreciate how important these smaller glaciers and that seasonal snowpack is for um, being able to have our water needs met throughout the year. This report says only 1.5 degrees C will save the ice world and the ways that it currently shapes our climate. Former NASA scientist James Hansen says 1.5 is deader than a doornail. He's all about Earth energy imbalance in watts per meter squared and changes in Earth's reflectivity called albedo. Reading the report, I could not find the word albedo or any discussion of it, even when Antarctic sea ice is almost gone. Did I miss something, or is that for next year? Albedo was not a primary topic of this report, although that you're correct that it is an important topic. As we're losing highly reflective, bright sea ice, we're exposing a dark ocean surface that is better at taking up heat and energy from the sun uh, and then causing further warming. So you're correct that albedo changes are an important topic area, and they can... Uh, produce what I call vicious amplifying cycles, where we get a process underway and that process starts to grow on its own, um, even if we might work later to dampen it. And I can appreciate where he's coming from in the sense that we are 
very, very close to this one-and-a-half-degree limit. And while it is geologically feasible, um, certainly we have technology. When it comes to economics, addressing the issue now is going to be probably more affordable than if we were to let it go and need to address the impacts and damages in the future. But these social and cultural and institutional changes that we need to really transform our energy system are, I think, the area that requires the most emphasis and also can be the hardest to move. Um, But I don't want to underestimate the potential for rapid social change or for mechanisms like substantial changes in finance and investing to produce rapid changes in how our energy systems work. And they move us towards a more ambitious pathway than we're on right now. Yes, the tone of this report is more emphatic than others I've seen in the past. Scientists call for a drastic change of course. Another new emphasis in this 2023 update, the report includes glimpses of the burden we place on coming generations, the climate debt. If we continue trying to maintain this fossil-powered life, What does that mean for our descendants? It is important for us to think about future generations. Often the conversation stops at 2100. That's only 80 years away, less. But these changes don't stop at 2100. And future generations will be dealing with long-term impacts, and some of the changes could continue to worsen into the future. As I mentioned, sea level rise rates may increase um, if we're continuing to cause warming. So I think if we were to continue on this three-degree pathway that we're on now, we would imagine a very difficult world for future generations, one in which they're experiencing what I would call global weirding, which is to say many extreme events, both extreme flood and extreme drought, uh, devastating heat waves, and also many events starting to build up on each other or produce compounding impacts, meaning that you might be hit by a kind of devastating sort of uh, weather or climate event, and before you can recover from that, another one has arisen. And finding that those are influencing so many places in the world that people really struggle to be able to help their neighbors. So certainly making changes now can produce rapid positive impacts, thinking about clean air, thinking about creating buildings and energy systems that are going to be more comfortable for us to live in and hopefully more just and more equitable. But there's also certainly these long-term and very important um, positive impacts that we can have by taking strong action now that is going to reduce risks and damages for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and generations to follow. My saddest EcoShock interview was with Australian coral scientist Charlie Varon. He cataloged so many colorful corals, went diving and found them, and then watched them die in the warming oceans. Your ice world is still there, but parts of it seem to be inexorably waving goodbye Do you and your colleagues feel the same emotions? I would say that my colleagues and I do share those kinds of emotions that are felt by many other types of scientists who are studying portions of our 
earth system, whether they be corals or wildlife, folks who are work on food security. I already in my career have seen losses from the Greenland ice sheet that are irreversible. Um, the ice that we've lost there over the last 25 plus years is not something that we can expect to gain back. And I find that deeply saddening. I know that myself and many colleagues are um, really devastated by the changes that we people have allowed to happen, given that we knew about climate change um, for many decades now, and scientists have been sharing this information, and industry and policy and business has been aware of it um, for a very long time. But I also try to maintain an outlook, understanding that change is still possible, and a determination to uh, convince as many people as possible to take really strong, bold actions and understand that we're in a period of opportunity right now that will not remain open to us uh, for a long time time into the future. So we really need to take advantage of this time we have right now during the um, 2020s to take strong action before some of these vicious amplifying cycles might get out of our control. So I certainly understand all of those difficult emotions, um, sadness, anger, and others, um, but I also try to bring in uh, determination and remind myself of all of the areas where we have made progress. Moving towards a three-degree future is better than we were off a couple of decades ago, and many people are working on, on solutions and action change, and I have hope that those can continue to uh, grow and more people can jump on board and we can see a lot of strong leadership. From the National Snow and Ice Data Center in in Boulder, Colorado, we've been speaking with scientist Twyla Moon. The State of the Cryosphere 2023 report, Two Degrees is Too High, is available free from ICCINet.org, ICCINet.org. You can find links and key samples from the report in my show blog, published Wednesdays at Ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Tim Lenton. If we carry on the way we're going, I can't see this civilization lasting the end of this century. No chance, in my view, on the current trajectory. Joachim Schellenhuber. If we get it wrong, so if we do the wrong things, when I think there's a very, very big risk that we will just end our civilization, the human species will survive somehow, but we will destroy almost everything we built up over the last 2,000 years. Huh? I'm pretty sure. Peter Kalmus. It's, it's just so, the path we're on is just so dark. It's so, it's so bleak. You know, I, I see, a, you know, tropics that's uninhabitable by, un, uninhabitable by humans because it's too hot. It's too humid and hot. Uh, that our bodies couldn't even survive there. And I see, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of people needing to leave that region and go to cooler areas. And uh, that's just the beginning. We are, without exaggeration, facing a trajectory and impacts that will um, obliterate the possibility of human civilization 
within, you know, by the year 2100. And that is not an exaggeration. And the, the fact that that is not widely known, that the stakes are so extraordinarily high, I think is something that really, uh, really should cause a lot of people to, you know, from, from media to, to scientists to, to hang their heads in, in, in real shame and real horror. Kevin Anderson. Uh, recent um, history supports the view from the IEA, the International Energy Authority uh, Agency, um, that the CO2 trend is perfectly in line with a temperature increase of six degrees Celsius, which would have devastating consequences for the planet. These tipping points have the possibility. They certainly put forward the risk uh, of, a, um, a, a, of a cascade that could take the climate, the Earth system, out of our control into conditions that would be an existential threat to us. Well, if that isn't an uh, emergency situation, I don't know what is. Everybody on the planet now needs to be galvanized to tackling climate change because it is by far the most important and biggest emergency that mankind has ever faced. Radio Ecoshock. We were told the big ozone hole over Antarctica was healing to recover by 2066 or even 2045. By 2019, the hole was shrinking. New science questions all that. Potential drivers of the recent large Antarctic ozone holes was a paper published November 22, 2023. The results bear on the safety of geoengineering, too. Hannah Kasenich is the lead author. She is a Ph.D. student at the University of Otago in New Zealand. After winning an AI-related scholarship from Australia, Kasenich and her colleagues broke the long-standing story of ozone. From South Island, New Zealand, Hannah Kasenich, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so just to be clear, there is no hole in the atmosphere. Ozone, a triple form of oxygen, is spread pretty thinly in the upper atmosphere as it is. What is the ozone hole, really? So I think we'll start by talking about what the ozone layer is in general. So the best analogy to picture the ozone layer is like a duvet blanket where we have an area of peak concentration high up in the atmosphere, around 30 kilometers. So this is in the stratosphere. And this blanket shields us from UV radiation. It absorbs that radiation and stops it from reaching the surface. And so we need a thick enough blanket of ozone in order to effectively shield us from UV. And what happens during the formation of the ozone hole is this blanket gets thinner, usually from underneath, in the lower stratosphere within what's called the polar vortex over Antarctica. And how does the ozone hole in this Antarctic spring look, and how would that compare to its first noticed appearance in 1979? So most ozone holes follow a very similar uh, evolution throughout the spring. So the ozone hole doesn't exist year-round. It forms after each southern hemisphere winter. So what, what happens is during the Southern Hemisphere winter, we have a circulation pattern called the polar vortex, which gets much stronger and circles Antarctica in the stratosphere. This vortex of air contains a pocket of air within it, which it, it kind of isolates from the rest of the atmosphere. And this pocket of air gets very cold. During the winter, we have no more sunlight reaching the pole. Within that isolated pocket, due to the low temperatures, we have what's called polar stratospheric clouds that form, and they're quite icy and kind of unique clouds that are yeah, pretty unique to this pocket of air. So on the surface of those clouds, CFCs get released into more destructive forms, 
And when you have sunlight returning to the pole in early spring, so mid-August, that starts a chain reaction with those chlorine chemicals where they deplete ozone pretty rapidly in the lower stratosphere. So almost every year around August, September, we start to see that depletion occurring and thinning this ozone blanket from the underneath. And that ramps up through September and peaks around the month of October. And then we start to see this hole close. And part of the reason that it's closing around this time is due to the polar vortex that contains the ozone hole and largely defines its extent, begins to become less stable. Once the pole warms, you don't have as much of a temperature gradient, which doesn't reinforce that circulation pattern as much. So by November, we see much more ozone over the pole. The vortex usually breaks up, air remixes, and you have the return to a normal ozone layer. So in general terms, why is a larger ozone hole over Antarctica a cause for worry? We care about the area of the ozone hole, but we also really care about the depth. So one thing that our study looked at in particular was the depth of the ozone hole at the center. When you have a more extreme thinning of that blanket that protects us from UV, you end up with more UV breaching the surface. In particular, if we think about the month of October versus September, the angle of the sun in the sky is higher later in the spring. So if you have a deeper hole in October, you end up with more UV at the surface. But perhaps more importantly, if you have less ozone for any time over this region in Antarctica, we aren't absorbing UV light as much in that layer over that time. And so that's a big shift in where heat is stored in the atmosphere. What that does is it influences circulation patterns across the entire Southern Hemisphere. So we see a shift of the circulation belts in the Southern Hemisphere towards the pole. We get pushed more towards a positive phase of the Southern Annular Mode, also known as the SAM. And so that influences precipitation patterns, temperature patterns, more extreme weather events across the Southern Hemisphere. And so as far as human effects, those climate and weather effects of the ozone hole are more important than the effects from the UV changes. So this could impact Australia, New Zealand, where you live, but also, I guess, the southern tip of Africa and and a lot of South America. Big changes just because of changes in the ozone coverage. Yeah, and we see that there's, uh, with the SAM, the Southern Annular Mode, we have had more of a shift towards a positive mode in recent years, something that is, is tended to be more positive than normal. And we've seen the effects of that across the Southern Hemisphere. So your studies about Antarctica only in one part of the stratosphere, uh, just for three or four months, is that going to be relevant to the overall expectations for ozone recovery? So when scientists assess the timeline of ozone recovery, it's usually broken into three different regions. So one region is the region that we looked at, which is the ozone hole specifically. Even with reduced CFCs, you'll have this polar vortex form. You'll see cold temperatures, lack of sunlight within the polar vortex during the winter. We'll have a little bit less ozone. And then when sunlight returns, usually that ozone will recover. For now, we have extra CFCs that are making things worse and potentially some other effects. And that's what we consider the Antarctic ozone hole. And the timeline for that is projected towards 2065 for recovery. 
And I don't know if our findings will necessarily change that. That's kind of the next phase of our work. The other region that we look at in terms of recovery is the Arctic ozone hole, which does form in a similar way. So we still have a polar vortex in the northern hemisphere over the pole. You get the uh, unleashing of CFCs into more destructive forms, which deplete ozone in the lower stratosphere. But that vortex is much less stable, so we don't see a consistent hole. And the timeline for recovery of that region is a little bit sooner. And then overall, the third region is just thinning of the general ozone layer. And that's global, and that's more of a less extreme version of ozone destruction. But that destruction is located where people live. So people don't really live in Antarctica or on the North Pole, and that ozone depletion doesn't really affect them directly due to UV but the rest of the atmosphere still does have destruction due to CFCs, and that's still on track to recover as well. Although I did find some signs that we should continue to worry about low ozone, in 2018 I talked with Dr. William Ball, then with ETH Zurich. His paper, Evidence for a Continuous Decline in Lower Stratospheric Ozone, Offsetting Ozone Layer Recovery, it was cautionary. And despite public assurances the ozone problem is solved, a stream of new papers continue to ask difficult questions. Hannah, what got you working on this problem? Well, for starters, I did read his paper, which I found very interesting because of that separation in different atmospheric layers of recovery and then a lack of recovery. And that is partly what prompted us to look at these vertically resolved observations. But even before that, um, when I began my PhD, it was around uh, 2022, early mid-year. And we had just had the 2020 ozone hole and the 2021 ozone hole, which were notably large and, and deep. And this was a time where people had been assessing the recovery metrics of the ozone hole through 2018, 2019, and seeing that there were signs of recovery. And now we had two more years of low total column ozone values. And so I was interested in seeing what would happen if you added those years to previous analyses that other researchers had performed. And then while that was happening, we ended up doing this analysis during the spring of 2022, which also had another large ozone hole. So now that we have three large holes to add on to this trend, I started seeing some interesting patterns just in total column ozone, which spurred me to look more in detail, more three-dimensional at the whole picture. Yes, you sort of break things down into the chemicals which humans have emitted, which have direct impacts, and then there's other natural variable cycles that are playing around here. And the ozone breakers are the halogenated chemicals like CFCs, but many other chlorinated chemicals as well. Have these declined significantly in the upper atmosphere? So other researchers have looked at the CFCs in the atmosphere and whether they are in fact declining. So I believe the latest status is that things are in fact declining, but there have been the release of a couple new CFCs over the past few years that we are seeing signs of in the atmosphere. So while we're declining, that will take a long, long time for the CFCs to actually leave the atmosphere. And we need to make sure that we are monitoring any new release of CFCs so that we stay on track. 
And so your team looks beyond CFCs, though, for other drivers of ozone depletion. And let's look at a couple. And starting with wildfires uh, here in Canada, we, our north practically burned down this year. We've seen huge, never-before-seen wildfires. What does that have to do with damaging our ozone shield? Yeah, so that's been a major topic with the recent large ozone hold we've had over the last few years, because we have had extreme wildfires and volcanic eruptions. What those do is they inject particles into the atmosphere, which make the stratospheric clouds inside the polar vortex uh, more prominent. So we're giving more kind of seeds for those polar stratospheric clouds, which allow the increased release of CFCs into destructive forms. So that's a big impact that affects the rate of the CFC destruction of ozone, particularly in early spring and lower in the stratosphere. And so likely that was a major contributor to some of our large ozone holes of recent years. And that's something that we are looking at. Interestingly, the region that we identify in October to have a significant decline in ozone, not just an anomalous amount of ozone destruction, that potentially is higher in the stratosphere than where the majority of the CFC destruction of ozone traditionally occurs due to the worsened wildfires and volcanic effects. And because it's a bit higher up, we started looking at what else interacts with that region. And that's where we see a descent of mesospheric air entering the polar vortex, intersecting with this region where we see declines. And so that's one of the major new links that we found in our paper. Yeah, I should mention the fires in Northwest Australia are pretty amazing right about now. You report that wildfire smoke can damage stratospheric ozone. Well, so can low ozone lead to a higher fire risk in Australia or South America? And if so, does that make a kind of self-reinforcing circle of low ozone fires and lower ozone? Well, certainly everything is related. And that's one of the tricky things about studying something like this. Everything will have an effect on other parts of the atmosphere and the climate. And we do see that you might have in more intense dry summers in parts of New Zealand and Australia, which might increase the risk of wildfires. And so that could be a reinforcing cycle. It's probably not the major contributor to some of the kind of long-term trends of ozone, but that's something to keep an eye on. Okay, so unless we're scientists, another driver in your new paper is kind of hard to imagine. Low ozone levels in Antarctica change polar winds, or is it that the winds change the ozone? What is happening with the southern polar vortex and ozone? When you have increased ozone destruction within the polar vortex, typically that ends up cooling the air inside of the polar vortex because the ozone heats up the atmosphere as it absorbs UV light. So when you have cooler temperatures within and warmer temperatures outside of the vortex, you end up with a stronger vortex, which also reinforces ozone depletion within it. So that is another feedback mechanism per se. So that's one thing. And then the mechanism that we identify in our paper as potentially related to these declines is a region of air that descends into the the center of this kind of calm pocket of air within the polar vortex from the mesosphere, so above above the pole, and it descends into the center of the polar vortex and meets up with the bulk of the ozone layer around the September-October timeline. 
You're listening to Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Hannah Kasenich with new research on the continuing ozone holes over Antarctica. It's been a little hard to get to the public the relationships between climate change and the protective ozone layer because they're not a direct one-on-one thing. What else can you tell us about those relationships? So I think one of the things to to know about ozone in reference to some of the other greenhouse gas increases and other elements of climate change is that it is a separate phenomena, but it in some ways interacts. So it even counteracts some of the effects of greenhouse gas increases. And so it's really important to study them independently, but then also assess how those things will influence each other into the future. So if we think back at the timeline of recovery of the Antarctic ozone hole in 2065. That's 40 years into a changing climate. And we have all these other potential changes we expect to happen in the climate during that time. And so we need to make sure that we understand the drivers of ozone holes today so that we can see how they interact in the changing climate. Potentially, some of their effects will be amplified and potentially some of these effects will become unimportant in our future climate. But that's something that we have to make sure that we study in order to know when we actually will see full recovery. Is it possible the South Polar Ozone Hole could extend over New Zealand, endangering plants, animals, and people there? Most of the time, the extent of the hole is controlled by the polar vortex. So we don't actually see that vortex grow in area for the most part. But what it does is it's quite dynamic and it almost swings around as it circles above Antarctica. And there are periods where it could potentially be uh, uncovering this ozone hole over the tip of South America or New Zealand, and I guess Australia as well, but that would be less likely. And those are very short-lived events and very rare events. And likely we won't see a more frequent occurrence of these. So that's, that's good news. What we really do care about is within the polar vortex, what's going on in terms of depth of the ozone hole. It looks like 2023 will be the hottest year ever. Does that change anything about ozone in the upper atmosphere where you're studying it? So we still are not sure what precedes a large ozone hole. Um, Of course, we do have the effects of worsened wildfires, certainly. So if that happens early on in 2023, that could be something to look at for the ozone hole next year. And then if we get more information on some of the precursors, looking at maybe temperature and wind patterns going into the Southern Hemisphere winter, we might be able to predict better what the 2024 ozone hole will be like. But overall, an increase in temperature globally, I don't believe has a direct effect over the formation of the ozone hole. And we've been talking about aerosols and, you know, the dust and industrial particles and wildfire smoke, the pollution from human activity. It usually stays in the lower band of the atmosphere, in the troposphere, but there are growing calls to inject particles like sulfates higher up into the stratosphere. It is geoengineering to cool the planet. Does your study say anything about unplanned risks of solar radiation management with aerosols? So this is something that researchers have looked in and is noted in the World Meteorological Organization report of the status of the ozone layer. 
So it's not an area that I study, but it's kind of similar to the wildfire and volcanic effects. Anything inserted into the stratosphere that has the potential to seed more polar stratospheric clouds um, has the capability of worsening CFC-induced ozone depletion. So when we look at any kind of interference, we need to make sure that we study its effects on all elements of the planet, including ozone. Ozone depletion over Antarctica has bumped up and down during the last decade. Hannah, what do you expect as we roll up to 2030 and then 2040? Can we even predict where the ozone hole is going? Well, with such a short time series so far, it's really hard to predict whether what we're seeing today and over the last four years is part of a long-term trend or just kind of unfortunate statistical variation where we've had unusually low ozone values over the last four years, but those will um, begin more of a positive trajectory. So that's something to keep watching. I also want wanted to note one of the years that we used during our analysis, 2019, was an abnormal year. And a lot of researchers in this field tend to exclude that year from their trends. Just to touch on the reasons for that, and potentially if this similar situation occurs in the future, why that might not indicate direct recovery. So what happened in 2019 is we had a sudden stratospheric warming. And what that does is it breaks up the polar vortex early. And as I talked about earlier, the polar vortex is really the vessel that contains the ozone hole. And if that vortex breaks up early due to external effects, we aren't able to see what would have happened to the depths of the ozone layer within the polar vortex later in the spring. And so um, we might see more of those effects on other years in the future, and hopefully we'll see clear, deeper, and smaller ozone holes in a stable vortex as well in the future. So for me, if I'm looking at future years, if we see a year where we do still have a polar vortex that remains intact, but within that vortex, we have less destruction and earlier closing of the ozone hole, that would be something that I would say, say is a really good indication of recovery. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners, like what you're working on next? So the next phase of our work is to dive into what exactly is going on with the mesospheric descent into the center of the ozone hole, and whether that is something that is more of a byproduct of worsened ozone depletion earlier in the spring, or if that is more of a direct contributor to the mid-spring evolution of the ozone hole. So we see that it correlates well with ozone values in October, but if this is something that is largely driving ozone depletion, we need to understand it and we need to understand what its effect will be like in our changing climate. The paper, Potential Drivers of the Recent Large Antarctic Ozone Holes, was published in Nature Communications. It's open access, listeners, so you can read it yourself. Published November 21st from Dunedin, New Zealand. We've been speaking with lead author Hannah Kasenich. Find links and more notes to follow up in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Hannah, this is great work. Thank you for talking with us. Thanks so much. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. What is happening would be a best-selling science fiction plot. Except older Europeans can see snow and ice shrinking away in the Alps. 
Large ice dams have broken in the Himalayan mountains, crushing everything below with epic floods. Greenland already lost so much ice. Iceland put out a memorial plaque for a former glacier. The Antarctic sea ice has become a shadow of its former self. The world's largest iceberg just floated free. This is reality. You can find maps of the New Earth coastlines on the Internet. Florida becomes just a stub with southern cities underwater. New York, London, Hong Kong, the list is long, the underwater pyramids of a former civilization. Fertile river deltas feeding a billion humans and countless species disappear under the sea. There is literally less land for the survivors to stand on. The whole rich diversity of coastal areas, including coral reefs, can be wiped away by a single generation of humans, this generation. Reports from COP28 read like the Doom Report, but Doom will not be short or merciful. It takes time. Heartless heat and commanding waves increase over centuries once the die is cast, once the carbon limit is crossed. How awful to know that, to measure the height and speed, to see it coming, and still do nothing but make it worse. If humans survive with a history, the first three decades of this century was the decision time, the beginning of the end. The rest is written, not in stone, but in heat, water, great dying of the species, the quickest and most dramatic change on this planet since the asteroid hit 66 million years ago. As innocent as we seem, we are the asteroid. We kill it all for a holiday flight, another hit of carbon, another day in the death of nature. The Brahmin age of creativity is done. Next is Kali, the Hindu goddess of time, change, and death. We are here for the funeral. As we just heard in this week's interviews, nothing and nobody can stop the ice world from melting once it fully begins. As the Cryosphere Report says, we cannot negotiate with the melting point of ice. The ideas and aspirations of our short history, they are melting, they are falling like the ice cliffs into the sea. The ancient past reveals itself again. Crocodiles may hunt in the Arctic. The last fish come to feed among drowned office towers where men sought to control the world. Recently, records were set for the most flights and driving in American history over the Thanksgiving weekend. Nobody knows the trouble we are in. You do. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. This comes from a song I wrote for those who won't listen or don't care. Beachfront condo, an SUV. My flight to Vegas was worry free. I don't worry about climate change. Those green freaks can worry for me. There's no such thing as. Don't call my number, I'm not home 
all alone. Don't call me liberal, cause I'm not one. Look at me sideways, I'll show you my gun. Down in the alley, I buy my pills. If the doctor won't do it, can't cure my ills. There's no such thing as... Even bother and don't even talk. I don't want to hear. Take a nice long walk. Your so called science, your so called facts, you're never gonna change the way we act. There's no such thing as climate change.